Let's read Isaiah chapter 53, beginning with verse number 1, and please bear with me as we read this together. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he, speaking of Jesus, shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. When we see him, uh, shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong its days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall, many, shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide with him a portion of the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Father, bless your word, I pray, and speak to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, if you were to check the calendar today, you would find that we're exactly 28 days away from daylight savings time. We're 34 days now away from the first day of spring, and we're a total of eight Sundays or 56 days away from Easter and our celebration of the resurrection of our Savior. And you may remember if you've been with us or maybe watching the last couple of Sunday mornings that leading up to Easter, that we're in a series of messages that we're calling Considering Calvary. Considering Calvary. And my motive for bringing such a series of messages is purely selfish, I confess. You see, I realize that because of the days and the times that you and I are living in, that many of us, and I said us, but many of us, our hearts have become cold and, uh, and cold and indifferent toward the things of God. And there's nothing that I know of that will warm up the heart of a cold Christian like lingering around the Calvary. Then, too, I realize that our church, and I want to say that I love our church, 
And I thank God that we have a good church, but our church needs a touch from God like it's never needed one before. And there's nothing that I know of that will warm up the services of a church more so than just lingering at the foot of the cross, thinking and hearing about Calvary. So in these Sunday mornings moving toward Easter, we're just spending some time considering Calvary. And for the last two Sunday mornings, we've been in Isaiah chapter 53 because in this chapter we have one of the most concise and yet one of the most precise pictures of Calvary in all of the Word of God. What a picture of Calvary that we have 700 years before before it ever happened. Isaiah, with the pen of a prophet and the eye of inspiration, looked down through the scope of time and he saw Calvary 700 years before it ever happened. But this morning, I want us to consider a question about Calvary. In fact, this morning, I want to preach on the question of who was responsible for Calvary? Whose fault was Calvary? Why had there had to be a place by Calvary. Or maybe I can say it like this. I want to preach this morning on this thought. Who killed Jesus? Who was responsible for putting Jesus on the cross? You know, in our day, when someone is killed, the first question that people ask is who killed them? Who done it? And of course, we have these uh, murder mysteries that come on TV from time to time when they talk a little bit about the person that was killed and, and then the rest of the program is uh, in the process of elimination, eliminating this person and that person and then finally they reveal the person that has been charged with the murder of that individual and they show the court case and then they show the sentencing as, as the case may be or, or if they're declared innocent or whatever. You know, in our day, the question we ask oftentimes when somebody is killed is who is responsible. On February the 25th in 2004, a movie was released in the United States of America called The Passion of the Christ. It was actually produced by uh, and directed by a man by the name of Mel Gibson. It was a movie that was made basically to cover the last 12 hours in the life of the Lord Jesus. The film grossed over $612 million. It was nominated for three Academy Awards and easily became the highest grossing Christian movie of all times. In fact, overall, it's the seventh leading movie, money-wise, movie of all time. It is estimated that an astounding, I'm talking about ju just during the first run, it is estimated that an astounding half of the entire population of the United States actually saw that movie in its initial run. But the film also set off a firestorm, uh, firestorm of controversy. The controversy was over just who it was that, were, that was responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus. Jewish people thought that the movie cast them in a bad light, and they feared that because of the film, it would trigger a rise in anti-Semitism, not only here in America, but throughout the entire world. Uh, there was a Newsweek article that was released about the same time that said something to this effect. The passion of the Christ is reviving one of the most explosive questions ever asked. Who killed 
Jesus. Well, this morning, I want to take you to the Word of God. I don't want to give you, I don't want to give you speculation, but I want to tell you what the Bible has to say about those who were responsible for killing Jesus, those who were directly responsible for putting Jesus on the cross of Calvary. And as, and as we look at this text this morning, I want to mention three different people that we find in this text who had a hand in killing Jesus. The answer may really surprise you. So let's get started. First of all, I want you to look at this text this morning. And number one, we're acquainted with the actual ones. The actual ones who put Jesus on the cross. Now, when I say the actual ones, I'm talking about those who were historically responsible for putting Jesus on the, the cross. I'm talking about those personally responsible, those that were there the day that Jesus was crucified on Calvary. You see, in our text, we keep running across words in this text. For instance, in verse number 3, we read about those who despised him and those who rejected him. We read in verse number 4 about uh, his griefs and his sorrows. We read in verse number 4 about him being stricken and afflicted. And then we read in verse number 5 about his, uh, him being wounded and about him being bruised and about him being chastised. And then we read about his stripes there in verse 6. And then in verse number 7, we read about how he was oppressed and, and we read about how that he was afflicted. And when we read all those words about Calvary, we are instantly reminded of those who, who actually had a hand in putting Jesus to death on Calvary. When we think about those words, we are reminded of those who inflicted those things upon the Son of God. And we think back to the biblical record of all the people that surrounded Calvary some 2,000 plus years ago. And we have to say, as we think about the actual ones, we have to think about a man by the name of Judas Iscariot and how he played a part in putting the Lord Jesus to death on Calvary. He's the one who said to the Lord, I love you. He even kissed the very Son of God previously. However, he had gone to the officials and he had coveted with them. He had agreed with them to betray the Lord Jesus into their hands for a measly, for a paltry 30 pieces of silver. Surely Judas had a hand in putting Jesus on Calvary. But then we think about the chief priest and the scribes, the religious people of that day who had a hand in putting Jesus on Calvary. Now you would think religious people would love the Savior. you think they would love the Son of God. And yet we read how that the entire time of his life, especially of his earthly ministry, that they hounded him. They watched him as if under a microscope, trying to find the first little slip up, the first little uh, thing whereby they might find an accusation to accuse the Lord Jesus. And we understand how they had a hand in putting Jesus on Calvary. Actually, they were responsible. Religious people. Did you know religious people and religion has always been against true Bible salvation? Religion and religious people don't like Calvary. They don't like the Son of God. They, they want to think somehow that they're good enough to get their own self into, into heaven. They, they want to bypass the blood drippings of the bloodstained cross of Calvary. But you hear me and hear me well, friend. 
You try to bypass the cross, you'll never make it into heaven because it's through the cross that we find an entrance into the presence of God. Judas had a hand in it. Those chief priests and scribes had a hand in it. I think about the disciples of the Lord, the followers of the Lord, and how they reacted the night that Jesus was arrested. You know, the Bible said, if you uh, think about those disciples, the Bible said that they forsook Jesus and they fled at the hour that he needed the most. That very crowd that had walked with him and talked with him and ate with him and performed miracles with him and ministered with him and had been by his side all those years at the hour of his greatest grief when he needed somebody for support and encouragement. Every one of those disciples, so says the Bible, they forsook him and they fled. Surely they had a hand in putting Jesus on Calvary. And then what about Pilate? Old Pilate, the Bible said that he examined, he questioned the Lord Jesus, and then he declared before the whole crowd, I find no fault in this man. He said he's answered every question I've got correctly. I can't find one thing that you find wrong with him. I find this man to be innocent. And yet he bent to the pressure of that crowd. He was weak-willed and his backbone was, uh, uh, was not strong and he gave in to the crowd and he actually had Jesus scourged and consented to the death of the Son of God. Truly he was responsible for putting Jesus on the cross and then what about Herod? We understand that Herod also brought Jesus in and questioned him and, and Jesus answered him not so much of a word and yet Herod had his soul soldiers to put a purple robe upon the Son of God and to plant him with a crown of thorns, not a royal crown, but a crown of thorns upon the head of the Son of God. Truly, Herod had a hand in putting Jesus on Calvary. And then we think about the mob. You remember when Pilate brought out old Barabbas, a noted prisoner, a malefactor, a cutthroat, an insurrectionist. Think about Donald Trump saying he's an insurrectionist. If there's ever been an insurrection, it was old Barabbas. I mean, man, he was a notable, notorious. He was an, on the FBI's most wanted list back in that day. And so uh, the old pilot brought him out and put Jesus on the other side and looked at that crowd of people. And he said, okay, you got a custom during your feast of the Passover that one of these prisoners be released. Now there's Barabbas and there's Jesus. Which one had you rather have? And the crowd began to cry out, Barabbas, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And then Pilate looked at that angry mob and said, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called to Christ? And that same crowd spoke up and said, crucify him crucifying. Truly that mob had a hand in putting the Son of God on the cross of Calvary. But then we think about the Roman soldiers themselves. The very people that laid Jesus down upon the cross. The very people that had laid him his back open till his entrails were exposed. The very people that had beat him to a pulp time and time again with their hand back and forth across his face. The very people that had ripped the hairs 
of his face out from his head. The very people that had cleared their, their throat and spat upon him. Those Roman soldiers laid him on that cross and began to pound those nails in his hands and in his feet. Surely they had a hand in killing Jesus at a place called Calvary. All of these people that I've mentioned, they're the actual ones. They're the ones that were historically responsible for the death of the Son of God on the cross of Calvary, the crowd that desired, the followers that deserted, the priests that demanded, the rulers that decided, the soldiers that delivered, they were the actual ones who crucified and killed the Son of God on the cross of Calvary, the actual ones. But then as we continue to read in this text, we move from the actual ones who were historically responsible for killing Jesus. But we, we, we move next to the absent ones who were universally responsible for killing Jesus. You say, preacher, who are you talking about? Well, let me tell you, this crowd that I'm talking about are just, are, is just as guilty of the death of the Son of God as the people who were actually there that day. I'm talking about a crowd that wasn't there that day. Wasn't there that day. I'm talking about a crowd that wasn't even present. Can I say this? I'm talking about people that weren't even born that day. I'm talking about people that, that, that didn't even live on the earth till thousands of years later. But they're just as guilty as the actual ones who nailed Jesus to that cross. I'm talking about the absent ones. You say, preacher, who are they? Everybody that has ever been born of a woman is guilty of killing Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Every last one of us in this room this morning can be charged with an indictment of first-degree murder when it comes to Jesus on the cross of Calvary. You see, the Bible makes it perfectly clear that the day that Jesus died on Calvary, that he died first as a sacrifice and second as a substitute. As a sacrifice, Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sin. You see, the Bible, God, ever since the beginning of humanity, laid down a principle in the Word of God that the only way that man can stand in his presence is by the death of an innocent sacrifice. When Adam and Eve, our great-grandma and grandpa, sinned in the Garden of Eden, God laid down a law. God established a principle that the only way that they could stand in God's presence once again was to, for a little animal to give its life and to shed its blood so its bloody skins could be wrapped around the naked bodies of Adam and Eve, and once again they could be clothed and stand in the presence of a holy God. And from that time to this time, God has always said sin requires more than just a slap on 
on the wrist. Sin is not just a little boo-boo. Sin is not just a mistake. Sin is not just an error in judgment. Sin is not just an indiscretion. Sin is an assault against a holy God. Sin is a stench in the nostrils of a righteous God, and it requires more than just a little time out. It requires more than just a little slap on the backside. Sin requires the death of an innocent sacrifice if we're going to stand in the presence of a holy God. And Jesus upon that cross died as the sacrifice of all sacrifices and his death and his shed blood can once and for all cover us so that we can stand righteous in the sight of a holy God. That's the reason we read stuff like this in our Bible. The Bible said Christ also hath loved us and had given himself for us an offering and a, say it with me, a sacrifice. He was our, our sacrifice. But then we read this. The Bible said that Jesus has now appeared once in the end of the world to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus died on Calvary as our sacrifice. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 12, we read this, but this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Aren't you glad there's no further need for another sacrifice? Jesus once and for all offered up himself as a sacrifice to God to cover our sin. Aren't you glad you didn't have to bring a turtle dove with you when you come to church today? Aren't you glad we didn't have to pull in dragging a bulldog to the house of God today? Aren't you glad we can walk in here free of having to bring an animal? You know why? I'll tell you why. Jesus, this man, offered one sacrifice for sin forever and he sat down signifying there's no need for any further. He died as a sacrifice for our sins. You see in this text we keep reading words like this. Look in this text. The Bible said in verse number, uh, verse number four, he had borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Verse five, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes, we are healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep. I'm telling you, there was a crowd of people that weren't even there that day that are just as guilty as those who were there. And that's every one of us that's sitting in this room today listening by the way of radio, watching on live stream. We are guilty of the death of the Son of God. He died as a sacrifice, but he also died as a substitute. In other words, he took our place on Calvary. That should have been, that should have been my cross. That, those lashes should have been my lashes. Hey, those crown, those thorns should have been my thorns. That spit running off his face should have been my spit on my face. Hey, those holes in the side of his head ripped out, flesh and all, those should have been my holes. Hey, those should have been my nails. Hey, 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 that should have been, that should have been me on that cross. That, those, that should have been my feet nailed to that cross. And yet Jesus died in my place 
He died in your place. He died as our substitute. It's almost like this. Jesus took every sin that you and I will ever commit. And I know, listen, this is a church crowd, and I get it. I hope we don't have a lot of fornicators and pornographers and drunkards and pot smokers. I mean, if you're here and you do all that, I'm glad you're in church today. But if you're saved under God's name, I hope that's not a part of your life. But can I tell you something? He not only took all that junk, but he took our gossip. And he took our lies. And he took our little innocent, what we would call flirtation. And he marched up under, under the weight of the Roman cross on Calvary's hill. And he died as a substitute to pay for our sins. Every sin Jesus paid for on the cross. He died as a substitute on Calvary. So I get it now. I'm just as guilty as Judas was. I'm just as guilty as those chief priests and the scribes. I'm just as guilty as Pilate. I'm just as guilty as Herod. I'm just as guilty as those Roman soldiers who drove the nails in his hands and in his feet. I am guilty of the death of the Son of God. And so are you. And you know, I doubt anybody in here I doubt anybody in here has ever committed homicide. At least I hope you haven't. I don't think anybody in here has ever went out and killed anybody. Hope you haven't. I know nobody in here has ever committed suicide or else you wouldn't be here today. I, I, I hope nobody in here has ever committed feticide. I hope you've never killed a little baby. I doubt anybody in here has, has ever committed matricide. That's Killed your mama. Hope you hadn't killed your mama. I doubt anybody in here has ever committed patricide, killing your daddy. I doubt anybody in here is guilty of killing your daddy. I, I, I don't think anybody in here has ever committed genocide. Don't think you've done that. But though we may have never committed homicide, suicide, feticide, matricide, patricide, or genocide. Everybody in this room this morning is guilty of committing deicide because everybody in this room put Jesus on that cross. Every last one of us nailed him there. The actual ones, historically responsible, but then there's... The absent ones, those who are universally responsible. You know, we've all seen pictures of Jesus on the cross right before they hung him there or after they've hung him. Uh, my wife, when, when my wife's mother passed away, she got her family Bible. And that, no lie, that Bible's probably that thick. And you know, when you get on over there, it's got a picture, a picture section in it. I remember as a little kid, that's all I was interested in, the pictures of the Bible. And, uh, but there's pictures over there, and there's Roman soldiers. And they've got their leather girdles and their spears hanging by their side and their shiny helmets, those things that come across. They've got all of that. And, and in that family Bible, those Roman soldiers are there at Calvary, and they're driving those spikes into the Son of God as he laid upon that cross. But one of the most unique pictures I've ever seen of Calvary is the one who shows the same scene, but it's not soldiers, Roman soldiers dressed up in the regalia robes of the military, 
It's people that's dressed just common folks like you and me. For instance, one guy, he's got a baker's hat on and he's nailing those. There's a lady over there. She's got a nurse's uniform on and she's nailing those nails in there. And, and there's a guy over here who's got a soldier's outfit on and he's there nailing those nails. And what that picture is saying is not just that actual crowd, but us absent ones, the ones who are not even there. You and I are guilty of putting Jesus on the cross. But now I'm going to shock you because not only were there the actual ones and not only were there the absent ones, but there's one final person mentioned in this text who killed Jesus, and that is the Almighty One. Can I tell you something that may blow your mind? God killed His own Son on Calvary. Let me prove it to you. Look at our text. The Bible said in Isaiah 53, in verse number 4, He hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of who? Let me get this straight. So God smote His own Son on Calvary? Is that what I'm going to understand? That God had a hand in putting His Son to death? On Calvary, God was responsible for killing Jesus. Well, if I understand the Bible correctly, I read verses like this right here. God, he that spared not his own son, but freely, but delivered him up for us all. Now I'm starting to get the picture. He was smitten of God. God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And then I read in Isaiah 53 in verse number 10, notice the Bible said, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He had put him to grief. Now I'm kind of getting the picture that it's not just the actual ones and not just the absent ones, but it was the Almighty One that put his son to death on Calvary. Can you just imagine how conflicted the heart of God was the day that Jesus was on the cross? I mean, the Bible calls Jesus God's only begotten son. And what that literally means is the only one of his kind. Now, God has many sons. If you're saved, you're a son of God. I'm a son of God but God has only one begotten Son, and that's Jesus. So here's Jesus, and, and, and God is watching everything in heaven that happens, and the angels are covering their faces, and the sun has withdrew itself at the, at the lightest part of the day. It's pitch black dark, and the earth is convulsing and rocking back and forward in revolt, at what's happening to the Son of God on the cross. And there's God watching it all. And his heart is so grieved over what is happening to his own son. And yet we read in this text that his heart is so glad at what's happening to his son. I mean, verse number 10 said it pleased the Lord. It's almost like God was sitting up in heaven and the tears was coursing down the cheeks of a holy God 
as he wept over what was happening to his son. And yet, there was a certain pleasure that it brought to his heart. Now, explain a fire that one, preacher. Well, let me explain a fire to you. Here's what I think happened. We read on in verse number 10 these words. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He put him to grief. Well, thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. And then it says this. He shall see his seed. What that means is this. God saw the results of what was happening upon the cross that day. In other words, watch this. God looked at his son hanging on Calvary. And then God looked down through the scope of time. God saw old Jacob over there cooking him drugs. And God saw one day that boy would come into the family. And he'd be born. God saw little Riley sitting over there. And even though really little Riley is awful young, thank God hadn't gone off into deep sin. He needed a Savior just as bad as Jacob did. God looked down the scope of time and he saw when little Riley would get saved. And it brought pleasure to the heart of God that his son was making it possible for a drug addict. And I, and I mean that, he ain't like that no more. And a little boy to come into his family. And God, through the tears, had joy in his heart because God understood that what Jesus was doing would make it possible for folks just like that to become a part of his family. Folks just like right, right here. Folks just like right there. And it pleased the Lord to kill his own son so that you and I could be saved. Let me tell you in reality what God was doing on Calvary. Number one, he was expressing his love. Watch this. Somebody tell me what today is. What is it? Did you get your wife anything for Valentine's Day? Have you expressed her your love toward her? Buddy, if you ain't, you better stop by the 7-Eleven on your way home and get a big gulp and a baby Ruth and carry that to her if you want to live to see next Valentine's Day. Today's the day we express our love. I got my wife some presents I'm going to give her here after a while because I love her. I'm going to express it to her. You know what God was doing on Calvary? God was just saying, hey, I just want to tell you something. I sure do hate your sin. I sure do hate that you're living like I don't even exist. I sure do hate that you're rejecting me. I sure do hate that every law that I've written, you're breaking it. But I just want to tell you, hey, I love you, and I love you, and I love you, and I love you. In fact, God was saying, I just want to tell you, I just love the whole world. And God said, I want to prove it to you. Look at Calvary. It is an expression of my love, but then it is an extension of my offer. You know, really, can I, can I close the message by telling you this? You know, really, what Jesus is saying on Calvary? Really, what he's saying is this. I'd rather die than live without you. Hallelujah. I had rather die than live without you. I will die in your place. I will be the sacrifice.
because I don't want the relationship to be over. I, I don't want to live in eternity without you. So I'll die so that you can live. Can I explain it to you like this? Just suppose you'd committed a terrible crime and you'd been arrested. Maybe you killed somebody, you just got mad, lost your temper or whatever, and shot and killed somebody. And they come and arrested you and carried you to jail. And you went through the court process and you were sentenced to die because you'd killed somebody. And they had sentenced you to die in the electric chair. So uh, the day comes after you've exhausted all of your appeals. They walk you down that hallway and strap you in that chair and hook those electrodes up, put that metal helmet on you. And the warden reaches up and gets ready to throw the switch. You deserve to die. The law says death. And about that time, somebody you never met rushes into the room and said, Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. If you'll let him up, let her up. I'll sit in the chair and take their place. That's exactly what Jesus did for us at Calvary. And God killed his own son because he loved you and me so much. Unbelievable. How can we sit back? What's that song? Now I've given to Jesus everything. Now given Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. Now my raptured soul can only sing of Calvary, of Calvary. Listen, we ought to give him everything. We ought to, we ought to be owning him as our king. Now our soul can only sing of Calvary, of Calvary. Listen, friend, I want to tell you something. God loved you and me so much he gave his life for us on Calvary. And Jesus said, I just want to tell you, I'd rather die than live without you. Do you know him today as your Savior? Has there been a time, I'm not talking about if you, are you religious? No, sir, I'm not talking about it. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Have you ever accepted the offer that God is extending to you today? God said, hey, if you'll come to me, I want to give you an offer. My offer to you, my gift to you is eternal life through through my son, Jesus Christ. Have you ever accepted that offer? If you've not, I'd like to give you an opportunity to do that today. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, I pray.